Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. On this episode, Luke and I are joined by Sean McMullen. Sean quit scientific computing for full-time writing in 2014. Before that, as an after-hours author, he gained an international reputation with his steampunk novel, Souls in the Great Machine. He's been published in a dozen languages, won 15 awards, and was runner-up in the 2011 Hugo Awards with his novelette, Eight Miles. His sixth book, children's fantasy series, The Warlock's Child, was jointly written with Paul Collins and released in 2014. His most recent short fiction appeared in Lightspeed and Asimov's magazine, and he is currently writing the fourth book of his Great Winter series. In the episode, we discuss Matthew Riley's book, The Great Zoo of China, and for the media section, we take some time chatting about Game of Thrones and focusing a little on the TV adaptation. For the topic, we look at the generation of ideas and how to make use of them and where they come from. If you have any questions, you can contact me on the email address mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Jill Martin, and we're at the Brunswick Street Bookstore today. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Luke's back! I was I'm, here last week. I mean, you were here last episode, but you're back for this one. <laughs> How are you going, Luke? Not too bad. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been catching up on a few things. Uh, one of which was the uh, the tribute that Neil Gaiman and I can't remember the other guy's name that they did for Terry Pratchett on the day that he died. I hadn't actually watched that, so I started watching that and I've gotten through part of it. Oh, mm-hmm. Michael Jabon, I think. Michael, that sounds right. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's it's always good to hear them or uh, to hear uh, Neil Gaiman uh, talking. He's always got um, a lot of very interesting things to say. Mm. Uh, Michael, I mean, he's probably just more acting as a host there, but I haven't found much input from him yet in mm. there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, definitely, definitely um, hadn't seen the, the tribute to um, Terry Pratchett yet. So, Talking about Terry Pratchett, I've been meaning to read, um, is it Small Gods, I think is is the book? You mean uh, Bad Omens? No, no, I think it's Small Gods. No. Bad omens. There good you go. Omens. I'm getting. Good I'm omens. getting a nod oh, from good the omens. end. Oh, I got it wrong too. There you go. Good <laughs> omens. That's good the omens. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, yeah, no, because a, a friend recommended it to me, and I hadn't read any of, of Pratchett, um, even though he's quite prolific. Mm. Uh, and I've and I wanted to dive into it, but I've heard very good things about his writing. Um, fol- following up from those, I've also picked up my first Neil Gaiman books. So that was um, okay. And that is. American Gods yep. and Stardust. Stardust. Yep. I've definitely. I've already started that. I'm getting yep, into yep. that. But um, hadn't yeah. read anything Neil Gaiman, which is weird because I'd really like to he- like to hear him talk. So, mm. well, <laughs> should have picked him up a long time ago. I guess there are a lot of writers that fall into the category of fantastic app- uh, ambassadors for mm. writing, mm-hmm. e- even now uh, whether or not you enjoy their work is is irrelevant mm-hmm. to the discussion as long as they have something to add to it is is interesting in and of itself. But yeah, yeah Neil Gaiman's one of those people, I'd say. And but, I went um, th- on the the quick tour through Matthew Riley's Great Zoo of China. Okay. Now I hadn't picked that up before, and now I'm still confused as to whether I have picked it up or whether <laughs> I just read Jurassic Park again. <laughs> but, Interesting. But it was it was good. I mean, it's good. It's, he's he's still a fine writer. It's just that I thought that he would do something more of his own and possess it, as opposed to just almost. Almost mimicking word for word, and well, mm. no s- plot scenario f- for plot scenario, the 
Jurassic Park series. Well, I heard that uh, Matthew Reilly said that Jurassic Park was not regarding this book, rather, but Mm -hmm. previously he had said that, you know, Michael Crichton's uh, Jurassic Park was uh, one of his um, big influences. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he wrote that in in an interview at the end. He was saying how, um, yeah, it was his favorite movie. Oh, so it was. It was with this. I don't remember if he said favorite book. I was a bit like, hmm, that's curious. He didn't say favorite book, but favorite (laughs) movie. But... um, yeah, it's so, a good movie. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so so he did definitely um, mention that. Mm. He was saying, no, I wanted to do something different. I thought, well, dinosaurs, dragons, you know, almost the same thing, especially since they don't breathe fire in this book. Oh, they don't. Okay. <laughs> There's two of them that do. That's it. The rest of them can't. So, so they kind of like dinosaurs. <laughs> so they're like pterodactyls almost. Yeah. Which they had in most of the uh-huh. Jurassic Parks. I don't know why, um, like, gen- you know, I read fantasy. I read fantasy. I don't scoff when I hear about dragons, or, you know, dwarves mm-hmm. or elves or anything. I, you know, I, I, you suspend your disbelief and you enjoy the story for what it is. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. There was just something about the plot of this story that just pulled me up. It was like, yeah, guess what? China's creating um, something to take on, you know, Western tourism and they create a zoo and they have dragons in it. And I was just, I don't know. It just didn't pull me in. It just felt a bit <laughs> comical to me. Uh, and maybe the writing is, is good, but you're telling me that um, the plot was... I was a little confused as to why he didn't use one of his older, more favoured, or like like his historical characters, because he would have fit in quite well as well. Mm. That's all right. So that was just my modern day as well, right? modern days, like yeah. Near future. Yeah. Okay. But um, I think the one thing that kind of peeved me, the rest of it was all like, okay, I can live with it. Mm. The one thing that kind of peeved me was that he... This seems to have skipped over a little bit of research in the Chinese dragon area because they keep referring to these dragons as being a part of the whole world's mythology. And that's fine. There's dragons in pretty much every mythology. Not all of them, but most of them. And um, he puts in a comment where they're talking about mythology of dragons terrorizing people in China. Now, in China, the dragons were always beneficial and like a benevolent. Symbol of luck. Yeah. Luck. Luck Mm. and benevolence. So Yeah, generally speaking, yeah. I was, I pulled back, I thought, oh, no. No. (laughs) What has he done? Yeah, I guess it's the, Uh, um, uh, a bit of, what's the word I'm looking for? Cultural smoothing going on. Just be like, let's just, let's just assume dragons are bad in this one as well, right? (laughs) Um, oh well I, I mean, mean that, was, that was anything that kind of pulled me up with oh no he's, <laughs> he's, he's usually such a great researcher and, and Chinese dragons for the most part always considered to be some water based creature as well like, water based you know, yeah they, you, there are some but it's, do they even have wings I don't even know if they have wings I think they just have I think they're just like long serpents yeah. that can fly without wings I think I think generally the western idea of a dragon is very different from a, mm. a Chinese version but but maybe the, the dragons in, in the zoo are just like I don't know, uh, generalized dragons, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read it. Put together but. to meet Western expectations. Yes, I, 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 I assume that's... be fine that's by me, yeah, as long as he just sort of kind of pushed the through the idea. They're not quite what we thought what they were in the mythology, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's all right. I w- it was still an interesting book. Sean, have you read... Uh, at, oh, and an introduction, ladies and gentlemen. You've heard his <laughs> voice before. Uh, but Sean McMullen is joining us for the podcast. Thanks for... Good evening, uh, gentlemen. Coming on. Um, have you read uh, any of Matthew Riley's works or this one in particular? Well, I read his first one uh, many yeah, years probably. ago, but it's just not quite my um, yep. my sort of area. Mm-hmm. I do tend to 
go for, um, well, I like Terry Pratchett's style of comedy and I like like Neil Gaiman's art yep. and I like George R. R. Martin's characterization, that sort of yeah. thing. So I, I look for rather different things in what I, yep. in, in what I read mm-hmm. and um, I pick and choose elements. Um, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do characters like Terry Pratchett does, but um, on the other hand, I, li- I like his, um, <coughs> his general approach with, um, with um, you know, the way he does his humour and sort of weaves it in, um, in, in into quite serious um, scenarios. Mm. And people are a bit, you know, quite humorous, in, in, even in quite hideous situations. Uh, I, yeah. was, I was in the air during the, the uh, 9-11 attacks and uh, it was, I mean, once we got on the ground and they actually told us what was going on other part of the world, um, you know, a lot of gallows humour went on and, you know, a lot of quite funny incidents, yeah. um, you know, came out of that. And I thought Terry actually had that down quite well. I mean, yeah. yes, people are like that. People aren't mm. really all that serious. You know, you've got to have a little bit of sparkle of comedy against all the blackness um, to keep you sane when you're in those sort of situations. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah I guess humour is, a, you know, human's way of dealing with, with pressure or pain or any, you know, tr- traumatic event. Ring around mm-hmm. the rosy. Yeah, one way of dealing with it, that's for sure. Yeah, but, um, yeah, no, um, uh, Matthew Riley's works, like, personally, they're not, uh, they're not like yourself, they're not all I look for. Um, because I think the action is the, the specific element in his books. Like, that's what his books aim to achieve, is to create um, exciting moments and to never stop, you know, <laughs> to just keep the... I can't remember if he described it as this, but there's just... Um, he doesn't want any there's no breaks. Dips. There's yeah, no there's dips. no dips. There's no pauses. It keeps straight going. up yeah. and then high octane from start to the end, and then that's the end of the book, and you want more, and you know that kind <laughs> of adrenaline rush isn't exactly what I um, get out. But it's it's interesting to see his kind of writing as well, and he's been branching out uh, in in what he's been doing. So it'll be interesting to see what he continues to do. Mm. Um, fantastic. So that's what you've been up to, Sean. How has your week been? How's my week? Um, can I say I passed the halfway mark with the fourth of my great winter books, which I finally got back to that mm. particular world after quite a long break, mm. uh, for various reasons I won't go into. But um, yes, you can see why George R. R. Martin was having so many problems with his um, Songs of Ice and Fire series, yeah. because <laughs> once you've got that many subplots and that many characters <laughs> and all those various political things going on, it's very, very hard to um, keep it all in your head. And, I mean, my I've only got three books, and they're only 180,000 words each, so yeah. um, it wasn't quite so much in there. I've cheated a little bit by setting it maybe about 180 years in the future from the third of the book, so everybody's dead by now yeah. <laughs> and you can just have it's these historical way, yeah. flashbacks yeah. and you only have to get the geography and the town yeah, names yeah. right and, and that sort of thing so um, mm. uh, yeah so I've been working on that um, got some um, stories I really need to write because well, people have been asking for them and all this sort of thing so I've been thinking through in the plots and that been watching a few shows um, particularly like first I won't say pilots, well, some of them are pilots, like the first um, episode of Dexter, the first of Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. of Rome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're ones that I know had particularly good pl- pilots. And when you look at a thing like that, it's uh, 
it's it's a potted version of what you're doing with the earlier part of your book. Mm-hmm. You're trying to get the, the characters established quite well very early on and very economically, yeah. and uh, television tends to do that quite well. Oh, it just snaps going. the audience, yeah. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. brings the audience straight in. Um, so, um, yes, that's taken up a lot of my time. And mm. um, well, apart from teaching karate and going for runs and things like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fantastic. You know, it's interesting about series, and we'll be talking about this with a guest uh, in a few weeks. Um, so that's something to look forward to. Uh, but we t- we'll be talking about the idea of writing a series. Um yep. And you mentioned subplots. And I'm curious because I've done this a long time ago um, with just some some works that I was just uh, banning around. And it seems to be that, um, and spoilers for the media section, we will be talking about Game of Thrones a little bit because that's topical, <laughs> I guess. Um, but th- there also comes in a, an element of audience expectation where they want certain characters to be featured because they suddenly become the fan favorites or, you know, mm. whatever. And, and whatever the author has planned or wants to do with some characters, do you think that gives in to, to audience expectation at times where you're like, mm, people seem to really get this character, maybe I should do a lot more with this? Yeah, the audience um, reaction and expectations mm. are tricky and uh, can be quite insidious as well. I mean, once once again, harking forward to Game of Thrones, but the actors who play Joffrey and Ollie, um, yep. you know, very talented and very nice young men, actually, yeah. um, been getting death threats. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sorry, guys, I'm only an actor. Yeah. But, um, I, I'm a good pe- one at that. People yeah. get... Um, and, and the guy who plays Joffrey is a very nice guy. I've yeah. actually heard him interviewed. But the hmm. um, point is, people get really emotional about it and they and they're... It's it's a it's a soft part in reality. Um, reality blurs, becomes very thin, and people start to uh, see this stuff as real. Mm-hmm. And I, I know in my first Great Winter book, Souls and the Great Machine, there was a character called Limeril who was very dynamic, a lady, but um, you know, a rather nasty piece of work. Um, by the end of the, towards the end of the book, because of various things that had happened to her and mm-hmm. the way she reacted to them, and she challenged somebody to a duel and the other person was just that little bit better and shot her dead and mm. I got a lot of flack from the fans because oh no we really liked her you should have left her alive <laughs> and uh, you know rather rather the same way as um, you know George was getting death threats from you know after the Red Wedding um, aired mm. in Game of Thrones so and and of course when Sean Bean um, yeah it, it was oh dear 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 I saw social media on that <laughs> <laughs> so yes they certainly do um, death but, threats fly mm, quite freely <laughs> but um, on the other hand what what do you do I mean if you make yeah. it too pat uh, then then they become sort of you lose just those stories and uh, yes, it exactly. all becomes a bit bland and uh, your world is not quite such a dangerous place and if it's not a dangerous place it's not a very exciting place mm. so. Um, Why write it anymore? Well, yeah. yes, it's and finished now. Yeah, and, off you go. <laughs> and and as um, George has pointed out, I forget what interview it was, one of his many, he um, basically said, without really good character, uh, without really well done bad characters, the good characters don't look as good. Yeah. yeah so you right. need the contrast, and um, you know, one way to make a bad character look really bad is to have him kill somebody good. Yeah, <laughs> so that's right. You get that straight-up um, audience reaction, and then they're either barracking for someone to die really badly, or they they really want a character to live. You heighten the stakes. Um, yeah, no, that's very interesting. 
Luke, before we move into the media section, have you got any news oh, for oh, us? Yes, today? yes, I do. Yes, I have a couple of things uh, from the Twitter feed again. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that um, came up with my, my, uh, Michael Pryor's advanced fantasy writing course, still going well and flourishing by the look of things. A mm-hmm. couple of pictures posted on his feed there. Um, there's a very curious thing. I wanted to bring it up on my phone at the same time because it's a bit of a list. But there's a, a, I think it's a publisher here called Choice of Games that's... Um, ah, yes, it's the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. Yeah, they're auctioning off cameos in a new line of games to benefit homeless youth. So you can you can buy in and make a choice for the name of... Let's find this one here. You can name a dragon in mm-hmm. the Chronicles of Mornland. You can name a god or goddess in Versus the Elite Trials. You can name a space wizard or a battle cruiser in Choice of the Emperor. Uh, you can create a new villain for Community College here, Knowledge is Power. <laughs> or you can create a supernatural associate in the sequel to So You're Possessed. And that's all to go towards a charity. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, very, for those, very odd, yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know, <laughs> the Choice of Games basically publishes these Choose Your Own Adventure series uh, written by various authors, and they're distributed. Um, some of them are free. You can uh, download them for free on their website, and also you can check them out on iPad, Android, or whatever systems that they're on. But, uh, yeah, they're good fun, and some of them have really good writing in them as well. So mm-hmm. something to check out. Uh, another thing I saw was that Shakespeare's Death Day, number 400, was fairly recent. was 23rd Yeah, that made a lot of news. April. So it's one of those landmark dates. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like Shakespeare myself, but oh, a lot of people could do, you, so. Luke? You said that live on air. I did. We're going to do some That's editing correct. afterwards, ladies and gentlemen. He never said anything. <laughs> Let's just move on. Give me any other poet, but okay. <laughs> um, but there was also a list of... The, it says the top 10 coolest magic systems in fantasy, and I've, I'm going to have to debate with this afterwards. But okay. uh, So the list was the Dying Earth series by Jack Vance, okay. uh, the Shannara series by Terry Brooks, the Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn trilogy by Tad Williams, the Belgariad and the Malorian Mal- by mm-hmm. David Eddings, the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, Star Wars, the Earthsea series by... Ursula K. Le Guin. Yep. The Long Prince Quartet by Daniel Abraham. The Mistborn Trilogy by Brandon Sanderson. And The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. Now, and that's in order from... Well, I think it's in backwards. In other words, Wheel of Time was supposed to be the best one. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. Um, I would agree with some of these, but... I wouldn't say that the Harry Potter one was that cool, for instance. It was, again, it was basic. It was great. It worked. But I would have said it was kind of basic. Mm. Now, one reason that they did actually say that it was, it was cool because it helped you. You can sort of learn the, the Latinizations along with it. So that was, that was interesting. And yeah. I'll, give, I'll give them that one. Um, the background in Harry Potter, the mm. characters and the set against which it was set rather than what they did magically. Didn't yeah, yeah it, was, it, it was more about, yeah, it wasn't that specific about how it works so much as it works it was it was all the story of yeah the the kids in the school and how how the wizards lives went uh star wars magic was fine i like star wars but i'm not going to say that it had the best magic system or anything (laughs) i liked it right up until they said that the mythical thing was just genes in someone's blood and then after that i was like well your magic system just died i guess Uh, the Wheel of Time series, it had a very strong one, and mm-hmm. I would I would agree that it should go on this list. I also say, would say that it got very annoying halfway through the second <laughs> book. Okay. Because 
it's pretty much you use it and everybody goes mad and dies and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the other ones, I haven't really read them, so I can't really quote on them. But I was a bit confused that the Aragon one didn't pop in because that was actually somewhere up Incredibly there. Incredibly derivative. It maybe. was derivative, but it was up there with the same sort of access access type as um, the Wheel of Time series because you had to sort of delve into your mind and break through layers of um, conscience, which is what was Wheel of Time, uh, well, the Wheel of Time magic was. And... And then you had to obviously understand the language as well. So it came through on two levels, which didn't end up on the list. So I was a bit confused. Interesting. Because a lot of the other ones were a bit more fundamentally bland. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were fine. They worked fine. But but oh well. Um, so that's the top ten there. Um, and that's, that's my Twitter feed for today. And that brings the news to a close, ladies and gentlemen. Let's move on to the media section. Where, yes, you guessed it, we're talking about Game of Thrones today. <laughs> now, we're not going to, spe- I guess, specifically talk about the latest episode, but you'll have to bear in mind this is a podcast where we do analyze things, so there'll be plenty of spoilers. So before I get Death Thrones sent to my email address, please, you've been warned, spoilers <laughs> ahead. Um, so with that said, let's, let's jump into this. I think we've talked about this on a couple podcasts, um, but I, I suppose it's important... Um, it's it's a great significance to media today, uh, and the way I guess it's influencing fantasy and just writing in general, and the and the way we write characters or the way we write plots. Um, so let's let's talk about it for a moment. Sean, what do you think about Game of Thrones? <laughs> it's a very broad topic, but I guess what do you think about um, how it's going so far? I guess we we generally a lot of people understand what it's about and and how it deals with death, and how those deaths can come very quite often. But, you know, where do you think that's going, especially when it comes to TV, and how that's taking shape? Okay, I'll There's take a lot of questions f- in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take what's called a flanking action, and yeah. uh, actually come around the side in, in good medieval um, style. Mm-hmm. If you remember Ramsay's um, charge against poor old Stannis's army, <laughs> um, he, oh, they were flanked on both sides. Yep. Um, George is actually a brilliant student of history, and I've mm-hmm. studied a lot of history and watching Game of Thrones, reading books. Um, for I've read two of them, I haven't read them all. Um, but, oh, yes, um, that happened in Scotland. Oh, that happened in Scotland too. But that yeah. happened in France. Oh, and by the way, that was uh, very interesting. That was in the Middle East that yeah. happened. And yeah. he's actually taken an awful, awful lot from real life and real history and actually put it in. To, to his scenarios, to his books. So there's quite a lot of precedent for human behaviour, which actually does take place mm. in, in mm. the Game of Thrones series, um, including some of the more shocking um, of the events. In fact, he said he's had to tone down some of real history. Mm. Um, and, like, there's things that I would... I've actually considered for my own writing. There was a, there was a warrior queen in... in I think it was Mesopotamia, who um, her, her son was killed and she swore she'd um, cut, uh, cut off the enemy general's head and drown him in the blood of his own warriors yeah. if she ever caught him. And um, she did actually defeat him, but he was dead by the time um, she actually got to him. So she cut off his head anyway, um, filled a bucket full of blood and drowned the head in the bucket of blood. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a yeah. real one. There you go. Uh, there's another king, I think, from Persia, who was beaten to death by his librarians with his own stone tablets. Yep. Um, a lot mm. of stuff like that. 
you know, it sounds bizarre. It sounds really over happens, the top. Yeah. But there it is in real life. Mm. And um, in terms of the fighting, heroines, that sort of thing, it's all quite realistic. Um, La Hachette, who defended Burgundy from the walls, yep. she was particularly good with a battle axe during, um, I think it was the Hundred Years' War. Um, she's a real person. There's mm -hmm. an awful lot of real people doing real things that are extremely shocking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, George makes very good use of it. Yeah. Um, and the cruelty and the incidents that were in the Hundred Years' War and in the Wars of the Roses. Which, yeah, which the War of the Roses being a particularly great used. Yeah. Right. What was that series? I think it was The White Queen, wasn't it? Um, that was based on the mm -hmm. War of the Roses. So I'm very impressed with him as a scholar, but flanking in from the other side as well he's a um, brilliant storyteller and, um, and 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 constructor of characters because mm. if you look at say the like magical systems or innovation that sort of thing i mean yeah it's fine but it's maybe not leading edge in, yep. in terms of the story mm. you just can't put it down and in terms of the characters you th oh, well, what's going to happen next um yep you know, I was I was watching the uh, the episode and wondering is is Theon going to show any guts? Um, I won't say balls in his case, but <laughs> 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 what is he going to do? And of course, yeah. um, he actually came up with the goods and um, mm. and 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 did some quite heroic things. I particularly like Pod, who's Brienne's mm. squire, and he actually managed to hold his own in a sword fight. Yeah. And wow, wow, isn't this great? Um, and you think, well, why did I feel that way? Because I like these characters. Why did I like these characters? Because George has because put together really good characters. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of lessons for people in that, and that is actually building empathy with your characters. Yep. Um, so I think I've flanked your questions in from both sides. Are you happy? <laughs> I think you did a good job there, Sean. <laughs> Luke, what about you? I was curious that you brought up Pod because of, it's one of the most more curious characters. You sort of see him pop up like once and then twice, and then he comes up again. And you're like, he's still alive. <laughs> and what and is what the is and what is the secret of his sex life? I mean, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just Why like do women like him so much? I mean. <laughs> and the thing is, like, he survives despite everything, and that happens to characters that are a lot more competent than he is. Mm. And, you know, um, yeah. You're right. It's it's a curious case. <laughs> mm. But uh, going off from what you were um, mentioning earlier about the, the real-life aspects being um, more gruesome in some situations, uh, I know it's overused, but I'll say it anyways, that the truth is always stranger than fiction. And it it's it's funny to see, to hear what you said about them actually toning down a lot of the things because... Um, it's it's quite funny to see people's reactions when something horrific happens in real life because they always think, well, I mean, or it's also sad to see things happening, but when people, the way that people react, they think that nothing ever happens in real life, you know? Yes. Everything that mm. happens that is weird is always a film or a... So it's, other, it's mm. gone the other way around. I mean, I'm sure people, uh, before they had uh, very sort of sheltered, cosy lives in the modern days, they would have had more... Um, they would have been more exposed to mm. more more gruesome lives and yeah. would have understood these things do happen. But now it's just so shocking. And then we've got Game of Thrones. Everybody's so shocked by what happens in Game of Thrones and they look at the history behind it. And, well, of course, they don't look at the history behind it. But um, when the, some people look at the history behind it, it's just so much, so much worse. And it's... Um, 
it is a huge undertaking that he's got there, trying to put out all this history. I mean, he's saying he's putting all these battles, tactics, uh, events, people's sort of characterizations that are similar to people in history, and he's got such a huge um, world already that's already full of these people. So it's quite, mm. it's quite, it's quite good to follow that. And it's, yeah. um and it's a daunting task. It is yeah. daunting. <laughs> um, it it's interesting because I guess going off from what both of you have said. Um, there's no questioning that George R. Martin is a very talented writer. Coming over the top on this, talking about another piece of media, um, is is uh, the TV show um, that has now been going for six seasons. Now, just entered its sixth season. Um, and you know, I guess I guess my thoughts on the on the series are a lot more mixed than what I think about the books. Um, George is a very uh, very precise writer. There are certain things that are done in the books for reasons. Uh, and that makes sense because you can look back at a character's action and be like, well, that makes sense. This character would mm. do something. And it's and we, we talked about this in a couple of podcasts ago, but um, you have the right to do something with a character because you've earned that right. Mm-hmm. Because that character has acted in a certain way that then feels natural and believable to therefore do whatever it is they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in TV, there's a different kind of challenge because you don't have the luxury <laughs> of that much time. So you need to, to, to cram and you need to cut down as much as you can. You also don't have observations from other characters. That's like right. Thoughts, it's a very different this, type yeah. of point of view. So hmm. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to come at it in the way that some people do and be like, oh, it's not like the books because that's an unfair argument to make because... Uh, TV and uh, words on a page are two very, very different things, and you can do very different things with both pieces of media. It's an adaptation. It's not a, you know, um, it's not word for word. It's just not how it works. Um, however, there are ways to try and keep the spirit of of that going, and and it's interesting to see in, in one particular character, and that's the character of Stannis uh, Baratheon, um, and. Uh, in the books, he's portrayed as a very hard man, mm. but a just one. And, and you get the sense that um, he, he's a tragic character established early on because you understand his trajectory. And it's a very clear one in some ways. Um, in the shows, it's done very differently. And I feel like a lot of the subtlety is lost. A lot of the nuance of who this character is is lost. Yeah. Um, because... They they've gone in with like a blunt instrument. They've been like, well, we want the audience to think of Stannis in a very particular way. We want to, you to think of him as a uh, as a hard man with none of the redeeming qualities in the books because we yeah. want you to barrack for certain characters and we want you to not barrack for other characters. Mm. It comes into that question of um, whether the author's job is to tell the audience what to think or whether to write the story and let the audience decide for itself. And what I think. Um, George Amon did is that he did that I don't think the TV show does that um, I think that it, it sets up these uh, situations that feel unrealistic to characters um, we, we get to uh, the way that a certain area uh, in the story is handled in the show uh, mm-hmm. the area of Dawn um, and spoilers again but I think it's worthwhile because it's the latest episode but you see basically uh, a very important area uh, a very interesting character in, in, in the sense of Doran Martell, who's, you know, 
well, he's a cripple in one sense. He's got gout. He's he's, but he's an incredibly strong character in the books. On the other hand, in the show, you've got maybe two, three scenes with him. And, you know, there has to be a sense of economy in a TV show. I get mm. that. There has to be a sense of cutting down to make uh, to make space for the more important characters. But you cast such good actors in some roles, and it's almost a shame when they're given no, no room to breathe. You just <laughs> cut them down, and you replace them with characters that I think could come out of a soap opera. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the Sand Snakes were interesting characters in the books, but in this one, nobody barracks for them. I don't know. Like, is there somebody who does? Because they don't have any sense of urgency. They don't have any sense of, oh, this makes sense as an intelligent option. Because in the books, um, Ilaria, I think is her name, is an incredibly intelligent character. Mm. And in this one, she's impulsive and doesn't act with any clear thought. And that, you know, that got me up again. Because uh, Dawn, for me, is... A very interesting place. It's a it's a Middle Eastern style culture in fantasy, and that's not done very often. So I really like it when it's done well. And in the in the TV show, I think it's just been shelved. And, and for me, Dawn is a disaster. Um, again, uh, this season six is diverging from the books. So obviously, these are we're looking to the to the the writers of the show and seeing what their writing acumen is mm. and what they're going to be bringing. So it'll be interesting to see that play out. But any thoughts about the TV show from, from both of you, Sean? Hmm. Always going to get problems when you're um, going from a book to a show, no matter what it is. Yep. And um, I think Lord of the Rings was the um, pretty well the benchmark in terms of, well, yeah, it was a great show and it, wasn't the same as the book and it was a great book but it wasn't the same as the show and I really enjoyed both yeah mm. but um, I didn't enjoy them for being the same story they were different versions of things that um, both worked for me yep. I don't know if anybody's seen uh, Magicians but um, I haven't read the book seen the series and I think the series is sort of, you know quite acceptable um, excuse me but um, People have read the book say, oh, no, it's not nearly as well done as the book. Um, On the other hand, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell um, loved the series. Yep. And I love the book as well. Um, And Mm. you can see, like, there's scope for um, doing some things on screen that that just wouldn't work as well. Um, Like, there's a scene in, in one of the later things where... Wellington is looking out over the defeated French and two people come up behind him, um, Strange is one of them, and he just starts talking to them without turning around. And you can see that Wellington knows that nobody except those people would dare come up behind him. So he just makes that Mm. assumption. Whereas um, to explain that Wellington was so important that he thought blah, 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 you wouldn't be able to do that in the book without actually having fairly lame prose. So, mm. yeah, two two entirely different um, works on the same story, and they both work for me. And sometimes, mm. I mean, I presume when I read Magicians um, series, uh, maybe it'll be much better than the TV show. I don't know. Mm. Um, but most times, I just treat them as entirely different yep. um, entities. And from what I've, for the two Game of Thrones books that I've read, mm-hmm. as opposed to the in you know, uh, the, the realisations on on screen. Um, really like them both because yep. you can do things on screen you can't do in the book yep. and the other way around. So right. um, it's two quite enjoyable experiences. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, really love them. 
Fantastic. For, for being different things. Luke? I personally have uh, quite negative feelings about the, the idea of veering off the the uh, author's mm. series. And it's it's not because they can't do well on the screen. It's more because it's one thing to vary something that's already in the book mm. and you sort of have you know something that compares to it sort of and does okay or poorly based on that. And it's another thing when when the writers are trying to possess the story and the characters and everything and take them on their own journey. So you've got the book and the movie or series completely mm. separate because then you don't even have necessarily a comparison. People still trying to draw comparisons between them. Mm. And I mean, there's, there are obviously books and movies have been done very poorly. I think the worst one I've ever seen is the Aragon movie, which completely got the series cancelled. They never actually made a second movie. They thought, well, we're going <laughs> yeah, to have to start completely that. again yeah, because they killed harsh. characters who didn't get killed. I mean, it just went mad. It was a yeah. huge mess. I but think in in that case, it wasn't a fact that they, they did a bad job adapting. I feel like they just did a bad job. On they the just film. did a bad job, yeah. That's, it was, <laughs> on the but, script, yeah. But I still feel that, to a point, the story is still George R. R. Martin's, mm. and therefore it should still be going the same direction. So I feel, I just I just don't, know if I'm thrilled about the idea mm. of them going off on their own and yeah. creating the I don't know what you'd even call it off call it you say the the, the, the forks of yeah. the the um Game of Thrones series mm. or something. Maybe I guess it'll, maybe it'll be good but I, I just yeah. feel like I prefer it if there's still the base base of the book because I, that's still a story. <laughs> I think I think definitely um uh I agree with Sean on on one hand where it's I like to see them as two separate entities, mm. and that's what I do with a, a lot of media. But for me, I think the series is a less enjoyable um, piece for me. Um, not so much early on. I quite enjoy the series early on mm. um, because I think uh, when you have great source material at work off, you can create good stuff on that as mm-hmm. well. Um, I think uh, the, the veering off while welcome and interesting to see a different kind of story, I think is just not as tight. And then it's mm. just the writing and general storylines are not as tight for me. We'll just have to see if they go too generic and too cliche as well, because yeah. again, they're writing fresh material. They're not adapting something. I'm actually quite curious to see what happens in this season and what they go on with, mm. because it'll be one of the first, I guess, examples of that happening where they start on a source material and then they veer off and it's this alt verse basically. But I'm, very curious and let's see what happens mm. alrighty any final comments or are we all good I'd, I'd make a final comment in terms mm. of um, mm-hmm. a lot of people seem to think I mean I think you know there's quite a lot of fantasy being planned for being filmed and, yeah. and that sort of thing I'd, I mm. don't think it always works that you can put a story into into the screen yeah. or take a s- screen and uh, do a really killer story and mm-hmm. I was thinking while you were talking of the Black Mirror series I don't know if you've yeah. actually seen them in the first yeah. one um, it's not the one about the pig it's the uh, <laughs> it's the one where there's a quite intense scene um, yeah. where the lady is actually confronted with images from mm-hmm. her own eyes and her own um, mind on a, on a screen her husband um, watching of her um, being unfaithful to her husband with you know, a, a sort of like a friend who's 
generally a pretty scabby friend. He's mm. like one of those guys who's very good into getting to, into bed, bed with women, but not very much more. <laughs> yeah, and mm. no long term. Looking yeah. at it on screen, she's actually you can feel her pain. She's absolutely devastated by this. The marriage, of course, doesn't doesn't survive. But um, I found it quite upsetting to watch her going through this mm. um, process of of having a husband seeing what she was doing mm. um, with with this guy. Um, and I thought about how would one go about putting that into into prose, in, yep. in, and you couldn't. Mm. I don't think you could. And I've been writing a long time. I've got you know, well, twenty five books and about a hundred stories, and yeah. I mm. I couldn't do it. I, yeah. I just couldn't begin to think how to do it. Mm. And so I think there's some things which are only workable on screen, and they're only workable on the page. Mm. Um, the only workable on the page, Theodore Sturgeon's Killdozer from about oh, late 1940s, a spirit takes over a bulldozer and kills people. And I've yeah. seen a film version of that, and it was very, very mediocre. It, yeah. it just didn't have much um, much pulling power at all. So, yeah, there's a word of warning uh, for television people and for authors. Uh, doesn't always work both ways. Um, if it works both ways, hey, great. Yeah, but right. um, Yeah, don't. Don't you know? I don't think it's a universal that you can convert. Yeah. Animorphs didn't work, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that it would be that much of a flop until I saw that you know, real animals actually look a bit bland when they're acting as humans. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Um, but you, you, uh, final comment from me. You brought up a really good example with Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell. Fantastic oh, show. Uh, loved, really love, so. love, love the book and loved. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, when I met. Susanna Clark. I actually hadn't read the book, so I'd, oh, really? I wish, oh, hello, how are you, sort of thing. But uh, <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd met her after I read the book, oh, wow, yep. you're real, can I touch you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, really, really good uh, works on, on both ends of the media. Um, so let's jump right into the topic, shall we? Um, so we, we've been talking a, a lot on the podcast about various facets of getting a manuscript out there we've talked about a publication and all that we've done it in various stages there's no one clear line through um so mix and match uh, to your preference but today um we want to talk about you know ideas we want to talk about um where do ideas come from <laughs> specifically <laughs> you're already laughing there's a bad sign luke uh. um and specifically i suppose like um what are ideas? what can we do with an idea how do ideas come into our minds what can we do with them how do we put them on the page and you know very very basic right at the start of the process of writing something um and so let's jump in through uh the first question and it's very general and i suppose that there might be no one answer but where do ideas come from sean well just before we started recording you said you quite liked eight miles which i got Hugo nomination for mm-hmm. and I can tell you the story of that idea quite well because I was at a party with um, the analog editor Stan Smith mm-hmm. in um, ooh, 2009 I think it was in Montreal and he came up to me and said oh, I really like your story in fantasy and science fiction um, about a medieval steamboat that actually with a with a an, or, an original steam engine which I invented myself, which mm. a medieval blacksmith could have made, and how it sailed across the barrier between worlds and fairy. And um, he said, um, "Why didn't you send it to us? <laughs> well, your analog, your hard science fiction, you sort of write for hairy-chested engineers and all this sort of thing." <laughs> and, uh, 
Oh, male engineers, anyway. And, yeah, um, beam me up. And he said, well, look, um, yes, you're, you're right, but um, it was very good and there was an original invention in it and mm. um, for the sake of something like that, we're willing to put up with a few elves. <laughs> <laughs> and on my way back to my room, and, he, uh, and I said, look, I promised the next story I write, well, I'll send to analogue. And on mm. um, the way back to my room, I thought, what can I do that analogue would really like um, with lots and lots of hard science in it? And I thought, well, nobody's done anything on ballooning and mm. in the 19th century and a couple of weeks before I'd seen that famous woodcut of the uh, balloonists to of the first humans to get to the stratosphere. They got higher than Everest in a balloon and they were dying and the man actually managed to pull the ripcord on the, on the hydrogen balloon with his teeth and, and get them down. His companion had already passed out, and it was an absolutely magnificent illustration. And um, yes, I could write something around that, mm. and then slowly wove wove around it, um, around that idea, the idea of going higher than anybody else. And I thought of nine miles initially, but apparently the blood starts to boil once you get above eight miles. <laughs> yeah. So nine miles sounded better, but eight miles was. <laughs> The limit of science, yeah. so I went with eight miles. Mm. And, okay, the story of the first people to get to eight miles. Why would they do it? Who are they? Where would they get the technology from? What was the technology like? What was the earliest that you could get the technology to do that sort of thing? And, well, 1840s, people went for rides in balloons and um, baskets are fairly small and the men and women are up, ag up against each other and fill each other's bottoms and all this sort of thing. So, you know, I actually, all of that was quite real. Yeah, and, um, the pleasure rides, yeah. And so I took it from there and then, well, why would somebody commission to go as high as eight miles, which was very dangerous? It wasn't just one mile above London and, oh my goodness, look at that. It was... <laughs> Eight times higher, mm. and that's where the idea from for, for the lady who is basically uh, marooned on Earth, and she doesn't get to her full powers um, because it's like us living in alcohol. Um, you know, the brain just isn't very clear for her until yeah. she gets to a very thin atmosphere. Yeah. So once I got that together, I had the scenario. I actually put the characters together, and then I needed a. A plot to go with it, and the plot was actually well. Um, she's she's got a certain value if she's kept under control, but on the other hand, um, what happens mm. when when you learn what she can do, and if she's trapped here, couldn't it be the story of her escaping, and actually mm. putting starship technology into the hands of nineteenth-century British people? <laughs> And at that stage, I was thinking, well, this could be about 25,000 words, but I'd really prefer it to be about eight. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so I started to cut back on that and uh, just, just pared it right down into, um, into, into the story of Got and incorporated a huge amount of real 19th century technology. And they could have made vacuum chambers. They did have oxygen generators. The balloons could perform a lot better than humans could actually stand the lack of air. Hmm all of that sort of thing. So it wasn't just the idea. The idea, bang, just like that. I, um, I wrote it down on a hotel notepad when I got back to my room and it was only about half a page and the pad was only you know small. Mm. Um, the rest of it was quite a lot of research on 
just what could be done in the 1840s in the way of balloons, and that made it fascinating because most people said, wow, I didn't know they could do as much as that so early, and people liked it for the historical background as much for the, as for the actual story and the, and, the, and the characters as well. And I think that is the key to it. The ideas are all very well, mm. but in some cases you can have a brilliant idea that's very hard to put a story around, and on the other hand, there's you can have a relatively simple story where you can have a, a really great, um, as long as you've got really good characters, they'll um, they'll produce the plot. Yeah. If you've got a really good plot, then you've got a really good story, and everything falls into it place. Falls but into place, the yeah. idea is actually only a fairly small component. Mm. You have to be good enough to put something around it. Yeah, the execution of the idea. Mm. Luke, where do I get ideas come from? <laughs> This is something I was. It's it's one of um, Neil Gaiman's like key points that I like to listen mm. to and and read up on because he, he speaks about it quite extensively, and um, I, I like his opening in one of the inter- an interview where he's asked the question, hey, "Where do you get your ideas from?" He's like, "Well, that's that's the question that you don't ask an author because <laughs> if you ask an author, he'll get really mean, and he'll get mean in like an authory way, which means he'll make fun of you." And he goes on to um, then explain that the ideas are actually very small things, like you were saying there, Sean, um, that everybody can come up with ideas. Everybody does come up with ideas, but authors train themselves to recognize when they're coming up with ideas, and they train themselves to find out which ones they can use. And then, of course, they put them down and they expand on them. So, I mean... The the coming up with ideas is one thing. I'll paraphrase what he said. Um, it's it's something like daydreaming mixed with a um, mixed with the author authorial creativity. So it's it's when you're just thinking about what could happen, just off in la la land, while you're doing whatever else you're doing, and it just pops in your head as to you know. What happens if this armchair was was actually going to eat you? It's like very very low and sinky, right? So what happens if you actually fall through the armchair? You know that just random ideas that pop into your head while doing every, anything else. I mean, let's face it, all our guests never get out of the podcast <laughs> in the end, so that's not fiction, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Continue, Luke. <laughs> but yeah, so the ideas. I mean, as we've already mentioned, there's mm. such small things that we just have to craft after coming up with them so the crafting is the tricky bit the coming up with them is very easy you just come up with an idea by looking at something <laughs> yep <laughs> or, or you're lucky yeah. enough to um to just see something that actually takes your imagination yeah yeah definitely yeah. And can tell you a quite an interesting story um mm-hmm. like cameron actually came up with this terminator idea from a go from a dream mm. and he painted the image from his dream and he fleshed out i suppose is the wrong word the terminator <laughs> around that <laughs> yeah and when you, when you mentioned Neil Gaiman, I was thinking back, I was a guest with him in 1998. My daughter was with me, mm-hmm. and he'd made a joke, I think, over dinner at, about um, uh, film plans to make um, Sandman, which have been a bit difficult. And he made a joke about, oh, with my luck, they'll probably get Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> to play the Sandman, <laughs> the dream <laughs> character. And my daughter woke up with a um, quite a bad nightmare in the middle of the night and um, said, oh, and... Stardust was just coming out at that stage, and she said, oh, I dreamt Tristan Thorne was a Terminator. And I, oh, uh, yeah. And he <laughs> went to fairy and started shooting all the magical creatures. 
And All right. every time he shot one, he said, hasta la vista, fairy. <laughs> 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 and I nearly internally hemorrhaged in order not to laugh. And I said, listen, can you just go back to sleep and try to think of another one like that? I mean, there's authors who pay a lot of money to have nightmares like you just had. And she thought about it and said, oh, cool. And I got back into bed and <laughs> went to sleep. <laughs> Next morning, sorry, I didn't have any more I, I nightmares. It wasn't that terrible. But point is, n- nightmares, incidents on the street, um, some particular imagery on the screen, mm-hmm. um, something somebody does to you or does <laughs> for you, all of these things can inspire. Yep. Uh, the stories can be the key to, to setting something off. Um, one, of, one of my stories... Um, you know, a lady who was a very promising pianist died, or mm. by the minister might have been, and I wrote Colours of the Masters to um, basically for, for a woman who has a career as a pianist after she dies because she's mm. invented a phonograph machine that can only be played back once laser technology is invented. Yeah. And she mm. does have a career even though she's dead. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just um, reading something about somebody who was really promising but died before she had a career. Mm. Yeah. That's so really it can be very slight, it's, but, but you know, the meat of it is actually putting something around. The, the interesting thing about ideas is that, uh, you, well, you mentioned it quite well in your, in your story, uh, Voice of Steel, and there's a little bit of narration that you have at the start, and I'll read that out. Um, if only I had used that story idea when I thought of it instead of waiting until someone else thought of it and won that award. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, somebody told me once that uh, ideas... Ideas are worthless. Ideas cost nothing. Um, it's, it's the execution, and that's sort of what you're saying here. Um, uh, moving on from, from the ideas of... Uh, the ideas, pardon the pun, unintentional. Um, <laughs> but is there such a thing as a good idea that you don't believe you can execute properly? Is there an idea that you can think of, but you just don't have the tone, the style, the writing acumen to do so yes has that ever happened of to you? course it <laughs> i've i've got um in my left pocket mm-hmm. my um my little thumb drive which has got everything i ever wrote backed up on it yep and it is jam solid with uh, i won't say jam solid but you know there, there, there'd be several dozen perhaps over a hundred files where with the title and a couple of lines describing something mm. and I've just had them in the background and nothing else has ever come of them because they're an intriguing idea, but uh, very hard to put characters around it or or it's something so spotty that, um, um, you know, you don't dare put something around it. Um, people, you know, become very upset about um, <laughs> this sort of thing. A lot of, like, you know, sex is one of those things mm. around which... Um, you know, yeah. people are quite involved in everybody, or nearly everybody, you know, strided at one stage or another. Mm. And it can be, for, for some people, it's fairly trivial. For some people, it's, it's extremely emotional. Yeah. Mm. And But it's a very touchy topic. It's a bit like religion or politics. Yeah. And it can be a very dangerous one to play with. But on the other hand, you can write some very powerful stories around it. Yeah. yeah. And I've I've seen, you know, as I, as I alluded to, that Black Mirror mm-hmm. story, I thought of that one. And um, then I thought of the other famous one from that same first series, The Politician and the Pig, 
And I thought, um, could I have written either of those stories? <laughs> and the answer to both of those was I wasn't good enough yeah. to write the one about the um, lady having to watch her husband watch her being unfaithful yeah. on, on screen. Uh-huh. And the one about the politician and the pig, I mean, that was a brilliant yeah, that was really well done. take off on, yeah. um, on social media. Yeah. But on the other hand, I wouldn't write that thing in a hundred years. I think he's very courageous for having written that particular yep. episode. But um, I've, I've thought of similar ideas. I won't describe them. Yeah. Um, they certainly didn't involve pigs. But uh, I, I really wouldn't um, dare write some of that stuff mm. because... Well, okay, leave it up to somebody else. Maybe they can handle the fleck better than I can, but yeah. I'd really rather not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are so there are some things I either wouldn't be good enough to write, or um, wouldn't be brave enough to write. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say there are any ideas that you've you've had that are really good ideas, but you've lost interest in them? Some of them, um, yeah. Some things like as a twenty-year-old, as a thirty-year-old, as a forty-year-old. Um, were of great interest to me. Now they're fairly trivial. They're not mm. funny anymore. They're they're not particularly interesting ideas. Um, or or I'd treat them very differently. Mm. Um, and that's it's neither good nor bad. I mean, there's some stories I wouldn't have written, but are still well acclaimed stories that I've written uh, that uh, that have won awards. And I wouldn't bother with them now. I wouldn't write them now. I think yeah. well. God, why did that win an award? Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, people still liked it, and people still, mm-hmm. you know, compliment some of some of some of those stories. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, but that, no, um, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, some things, um, and I mean, you put uh, the the other aspect too is um, the matter of how much work to put into the story as well to make it work. Some, yeah, to, to force right. it to work. Um, a couple of novels I've tried to write that um, just never became exciting, and I put everything into them. I tried all the tricks of, <laughs> yep. you know, the Tolkien trick of, you know, action and then relaxation, action, relaxation. <laughs> that didn't work. I tried various other things and eventually gave up on them. Hmm. On the other hand, there's other stories that sort of like have almost been, and, and this is some advice that I give everybody. Um, that I sort of rushed into print with somebody wanted something, I produced something, it was good enough for the editor, they quite liked it. I wanted to revise it, but because it was rushed into print, um, it, it was a good story, but not a great story. Yeah. And that's another problem, I think, you know, people who are trying to establish a career in writing now have got that I didn't have, because with the internet, with print on demand, with Amazon.com, all that sort of thing. You can actually write your book, and yep. it'll be fairly scabby, and um, <laughs> and you can get it into print. Yeah, and then can. by the time you've done your fourth and your fifth, you've got a reputation of being a mediocre author. <laughs> by which time you've actually really learned to write well, yep. but and because you've rushed good. all this other stuff into print. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when I was starting out, uh, my first book came out in what 1992. Um, I've been writing for quite a while, trying to get better and better, and of course nobody'd publish. Uh, or nobody that I wanted to publish it would publish. And I just refined it and refined it and refined my technique and became better and better and better. And by the time it actually did find its way into print, it was good enough to... It didn't win an award, but it, won a, it got shortlisted and mm. got some mm. very fine reviews. But I was forced to actually become better before I found my way into print. Mm. These days, you can rush yourself into print. No barrier for entry. And uh, after, well, three or four people have rejected me, okay, I'm going to go to Amazon.com. Mm. And 
then you come back in five years and oh boy, I wish I could withdraw that. Um, yep. And so that's the converse of it. There's there's stuff you'd you can't write, and there's stuff you really probably shouldn't, shouldn't write. write. <laughs> and um, difficulty in getting it into print actually does insure you against that second one. Yep. Mm. But um, because it's so easy to get into print these days, the temptation. You know, you feel the hand on your shoulder, and if you don't look down for the cloven hoof, you're you're in for a lot of trouble because people will see that highly embarrassing story or novel. Yeah, that's right. Um, it it's interesting to me because the process of of generating ideas uh, can be also a, a problem for a lot of writers. Where you 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 have an idea, you start writing it, and another idea pops up, and you're like, oh, that would be a fantastic story too. And instead of putting that idea um, just note it down or something. They then move on to that idea and shelve the previous idea, and then it just keeps going. And I, and I've heard this from uh, a lot of emerging writers as well, where they're just like, "Oh, I've got this better idea that is, you know, is better than my previous one." And I said, "Why is it better? Is it better because it's different? You know, is it because it's fresh?" And and that's interesting to me as well. And uh, you know, in in my process of writing, when I was writing uh, Sword and Sorcery, I am writing Sword and Sorcery. Um, it was the thought that okay. Um, the idea is good, but sword and sorcery is a is a genre which is generally dead. Um, transitions into more f- general fantasy these days, uh, moving on to epic and such. So, it's, mm. so the idea itself would need to be captivating. It have to be more than just what I imagined to be um, uh, amnesia was the initial idea. But it has to had it had to be more than just amnesia. It had to be a better idea than that. And that was the idea of just me shelving that idea and refining it or doing something better with it. I think that's um, a really excellent sort of vein you've exposed. I mean, like vein in terms of vein of gold and yeah. rather than a, in your arm. <laughs> I've, been, I've been revisiting some old Swords and Sorcery, Lynn, Lynn Carter's um, US Best yep. um, Fantasy, which mm-hmm. is basically Sword and Sorcery and pretty well extremely large muscled guys with suntans waving swords and <laughs> glancing right. about in loincloths. Yeah. Um, but amongst those are um, one rather sweet little story called The Lonely Songs of Larendor by a promising young writer called um, 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 George R. R. Martin, I think it was, <laughs> where a girl crashes into a universe and mm. there's always a guardian at each gate that tries to kill her. And she meets a guy and they get along very well and she almost falls in love with him but she's trying to save her lover from some rather nasty creatures mm. in another universe and she needs to find the next gate to see if he's there and she can't find the guardian even when she finds the gate and it turns out the guardian on this particular gate was that guy mm. and he was trying to keep her away from the gate by love rather than by a large sword mm. or big teeth and claws mm. and I found it thoroughly enchanting when I first read it. I've never seen a story quite like that since, but it is swords and sorcery. It is really good fantasy. Mm -hmm. And it was totally different from all the others, and it certainly stayed in my mind. So I don't entirely agree that swords and sorcery is played out. I mean, the old... Or rather, the Robert E. Howard style yeah, stuff is um, the traditional cert- version certainly, of it. It's, it's even hard to read these days without getting <laughs> pain behind your, you know, your left eye. But um, <laughs> the, the um, but in, you know, if you can come up with the mm. really, really good ideas and some really quite interesting ideas, um, I I wrote a story um, basically explaining where King Arthur came from 
mm-hmm. and set it in, in, in the year without the summer, uh, the year 535, when I think it was Krakatoa went sky high and Europe froze and red snow fell from the sky. And the last of the Romans was still around. They, they, they became little estates in Britain with, and they still had their orgies and things like that, but they just didn't pay any taxes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a story of a guy who invented a character called Arthur the Bard and um, for, for various reasons. And then he, um, he, like, he had to become Arthur because Arthur was too big not to exist. Yeah. So um, this particular Bard, it wasn't anything particular physically, had to become this heroic king um, in order to uh, to live up to the stories that he'd written. The expectation so that he had created. I think that's a you know that was a new take, take on on, on mm-hmm. swords and sorcery. Um, basically, it didn't have any sorcery in it, but yeah. um, nevertheless showed you know showed that there can be a way for um, you know that, that that like a character will come into existence even you know if if the social expectations are, are great enough. I think. You should be able to you know, mm. think, well, what can I do that's totally new in swords and sorcery? And you probably will come up that's with right. something. I'm, I'm sure you will. That idea pops up. Um, so he- here's an interesting thing, uh, and that is, can an idea break the bounds of what you intended it to be, for instance? Uh, the idea is a short story, which develops into a novel, which develops into a film script, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's happened to me before. What, you know... Has that happened, and what are your examples of that, Sean? Uh, it's happened time and again mm. um, with me. Uh, the early stories, I can't even remember whether the sto- like with the Deciad, um I won writing um, competition for a Wilt science fiction convention with, yep. with with the original short story, and that was I basically I, I basically had a dream, rather like James Cameron, but not quite as famous, um, <laughs> about some people exploring a cavern in Antarctica and they find a Roman ship and there's a body in the ship and they warm the body up and he becomes a Roman centurion and then mm. I woke up and thought, oh, God. <laughs> and I wrote a story around that and then I eventually thought, well, there can be a time machine and in Antarctica and all you need is basically some glycol to keep the blood yeah. and body fluids okay and, um, and then the Romans can just, I don't know, put a flag or whatever, Roman's head up on top of this ice cave and... <laughs> Hope that somebody revives them in yep. a thousand years' time, and then it broke the bounds. And I thought, well, I've got to do something about this. It could be an interesting novel. I wonder what would make it really interesting, mm-hmm. um, because people frozen in ice. Well, it's been done to death, and it broke the bounds when I was in Canterbury and looking at various underground bits and pieces in the medieval ruins and things they had they had in Canterbury in England that is mm-hmm. not in Australia and <laughs> I thought well maybe I could have my frozen ice Roman time machine here how would they do it and I was just sort of driving along in the hire car and thinking well yes maybe they could harvest ice and Yes, and you've got this community of people and it's a human-powered time machine harvesting ice and snow in winter, compacting it, building up this blocks of ice around this Roman who's the time traveller. And it's basically in southern England, so it's pretty unlikely to have a refrigerator in southern <laughs> England in medieval period. But um, they, and they keep him on ice for a thousand years and he mm. wakes up and he fights in the Hundred Years' War. And I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. 
And I thought, well, at this stage, maybe they could wake him up several times and have yeah. several short stories. And mm. I did actually have, you know, a separate short story where he wakes up um, during the Dark Ages and helps out against the Vikings. <laughs> and it sort of like grew and grew and grew because there's a lot of scope for a time-traveling yep. Roman in a human-powered <laughs> time machine. <laughs> and that yep. and that eventually became my first overseas sale, which is the Centurion's Empire, mm-hmm. which came out in, what, uh, 96, 97, sort of quite a while mm. later. But it was my first uh, sale in America. Mm. And so that certainly did break the original bounds because the original bounds was just an idea that I had for a, you know from a dream. And I had a lot of problems putting that into a short story. And then eventually I thought, well, um, I, can, I can have these Romans fleeing the fall of the Roman Empire and putting a time machine together. And um, so I made it a bit like the, um, the, 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 the Trojans fleeing from Troy. Um, the Romans fleeing from, I don't know, Alaric or Attila or whoever yeah. sacked Rome in, ooh, what, 412, wasn't it? Yeah, um, something around there. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's 411. <laughs> and um, so it was basically like a retelling, and I went and yep. read a translation of the original and um, sort of you know took it out from there. But basically, that's how I got the idea mm-hmm. into a story form by basically using... Uh, you know, a classic um, from the, well, classical period. Yeah. And then thought, well, yeah, you can do this in other periods. Having a Roman perspective on the Dark Ages, (laughs) on the Middle Ages, on the 21st century, on social media, (laughs) which wasn't invented then. Yeah. Um, You know, this can all be, you know, really cool stuff. And um, so basically they became chapters in... In, in the books of the Centurion's Empire. Mm. So that's the classic one of the way it, yeah. of the bounds. And the other one, of course, was um, Souls in the Great Machine. Yep. I worked in the State Library for a while and there were some pretty weird people working there. <laughs> Not as weird <laughs> I mean, as probably the people in that book, hopefully. One of which was me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was doing postgraduate work and being um, working in the library was very good for sneaking away to lectures. Yeah. But I had the idea that the big reading hall was like a like a drum drive, if you remember old drum drives, and um, and and that you had inputs and outputs, and um, like you had parallels to RAM, so the library became a, a computer. Mm. And then I put together this fanciful Australia set in the far distant future, where it was ruled by a cast of rather psychopathic librarians <laughs> armed with flintlock pistols who, who dueled <laughs> duel with each other, and um, and then I gradually put together. Arthur C. Clarke had written a story involving a spaceship whose computer had to be an Abacus thing because the mm. computer got destroyed. And there was a Doctor Who episode, which I've never seen, actually, which mm. involved something similar. And I thought, well, you know, this is all very well, but maybe if I put an operating system together and uh, a sort of like an assembler language, yeah. and it could do it with Abacus beads and you could have different functions for different people and then... This is about how fast to do it. And I had to learn to use a Bacchus. And then I programmed it for a basically a, um, oh, what was it? I think it was a PDP 11. Oh, wow. Um, no, it was a VAX 11780 <laughs> emulating a, a PDP ago. 11. That was yeah. it. And I actually slowed the computer down, mm. knocked out a few clock cycles, and actually it worked. Yeah. I actually did have a program that actually worked as a, as a calculator. And it was a lot of fun. I had to throw most of it out because it didn't work, but I knew it would work. Yeah. And I had to put a story around it. And how do you put a story around 
and a back-of-speed computer. Mm. Very hard. Well, put a few bugs in. Have it debugging, and then you've got you've, you've got a huge scope when you do that because you've got human components yep. who can actually be the bugs. Yeah. And so it was the story of debugging this computer. Mm. And what do you do when you finally debug the computer? Well, you haul them out, line them outside everybody (laughs) else and have them shot. (laughs) And that actually came from real life as well because at one stage when I was very poor and bought my first house, I had a, you know, those little blower heaters you put Mm. on the floor and they put out hot air. I bought one, the cheapest I could get. And after, uh, I think it was two or three days after the laundry expired, it broke down. I took it apart and I glued things back together and repaired it and I started it up again. Three weeks later, it broke down again and I soldered a couple of things on and five or six times I repaired this damn thing over six months <laughs> and I finally lost patience. I took it out into the backyard and every other movable electronic device that I could get hold of I actually took out in the backyard and ringed it around this thing, apart from the refrigerator <laughs> and the washing machine. I took out the television, the toaster, and I smashed up the down blower heater. Pieces so small that you could fit the largest of them into a matchbox. And if you've ever tried to break up an electric motor, this is no mean yeah, feat. Yeah, not, it's not easy. And not one of those devices ever broke down. <laughs> they understood their place in the world. <laughs> Until I gave them away or, um, you know, they just became a bit old and got passed on to other people. Um, and that was the actual incident that I put into yeah. the, um, st- the original short story, Souls and the Great Machine, for yep. the debugging of the computer, because you show all the components what happens is if, what if they fool around in the calculator, and, of course, the components behave themselves a lot better um, <laughs> after that. So, once again, the idea, fairly simple. Sources of the various components to make a story of the idea and the, and the people themselves, Quite difficult. Much more very, complex. very hard, mm. and I won't... I mean, not while the current libel laws are in in force, but um, tell you any sort of incidents from the state library, but, you know, people and their incidents in there that you just couldn't put into print or the (laughs) editor would actually, you know, tear up the manuscript and tell you to try harder. Yep. Um, But once again, you need both. And you you need... That's why I find uh, people who are a bit older, like sort of like 30s, 40s, 50s, tend to produce much more interesting and original fiction than people sort of like 15, 16 to about mid-20s because... They've got the life experience, and um, they've seen enough weirdness to actually <laughs> make sense of it. Or, to, to, or not. To, to, well, to actually or to at least um, have an opinion of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to have a little warehouse in the mind where yeah. they can actually um, pull the stuff out. Yeah. Luke, ideas. <laughs> what oh, what do they become? The do they adaptation. become bigger or do they become smaller? Mine always become bigger. That's <laughs> my novel was supposed to be just a little diary for somebody who was looking at somebody else's life. Mm. And then it turned into this guy becoming a main character and then becoming even more important, then becoming even more important. Then it became like this giant big diary about this one who was suddenly the most important, well, one of the most important characters in the in, in the world. world. Yeah, Became a hero's <laughs> so, journey of that so character. So it was just supposed to yeah. be a chronicler, really. He was supposed to be this like cool sort of side character who looks at everything else. He's like, oh, this is what happened on this date and this date. And, and then you'd see all these other people doing everything. But... <laughs> He became the one. So yeah. That's um that idea kind of it almost it did reverse really. Yeah. It's yes. Neil Gaiman actually has, you know, said something very similar when, mm. when we were on a P 
panel, um, you know, the characters like um, who's who's the guy with all the feathers in Neverwhere? He actually turned up. Yeah. He was just put in because somebody had to say something to somebody at some stage. And he wouldn't go away and he got bigger and bigger and bigger and he kept on, you know, and then he became the person who was, um, you know, brought the, um, uh, what's what's his name, the uh, Marquis de Carabas back to life. Mm. Um, And you get characters like the Glaskin character in Souls and a Great Machine. He was just meant to be sort of like comic relief and then... He they became more and bigger. more and more popular. And <laughs> girls come up to me in signings and say, oh, I really like Laskin because, you know, he really got his and uh, you know, I had a boyfriend just like him. And uh, <laughs> it was really gratifying to see somebody like that really get trashed. <laughs> <laughs> Too much real-life comparisons. <laughs> well, yes, but I certainly, it helps. So, certainly sold books. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah, I think... the. the the idea, well, the idea, I'm, I'm saying this too many times, the idea behind the idea growth is that you have a particular cog in the machine uh, that works really well until that becomes the story, until the mm. cog becomes, yeah, yeah. becomes the entire point of it. And at times that can be really good, and there are certain times when that can become not so good, when the story loses focus, when it becomes bigger than it should have been, or, um, you know, that's happened in my writing as well, where it's just become too bloated and then you lose the scope of what you were trying to do to begin with. So in the end, you know, ideas are as much as you make of it, I suppose, and the execution, as we said at the start, is all that matters. We have run out of time, ladies and gentlemen. We've been going on for quite some time. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Sean, for coming into the podcast. My pleasure. It was a pleasure to have you. So we get to the social media section of the podcast where we tell you where our stuff is being put out and you can follow us and give us ad revenue or sales, hopefully. <laughs> Sean, where would that be for you? My, I try to keep my website up to date and that's www.seanmcmullen.net.au. That has some, I think that's got about six stories that I've actually posted up readings on um, SoundCloud, which, which is linked into the site. It's got, mm-hmm. um, I think it's got some, um, you know, I think about my own website. <laughs> I think it's got some of my stories actually available if you want to just read them on yep. screen. And it's got some background on me and um, basically details on how to um, find, find the books. That are available online. All my mm-hmm. stuff is is now available as ebooks, um, and all the links are there. Apart from that, I've got a Facebook page, which I think is public. <laughs> um, I'm fairly sure it is. Just look for Sean McMullen. I'm probably there. Yep. Um, but I'd warn you, there's a basketball player in America. There's a celebrity meteorologist called Sean McMullen, <laughs> and I think there are a couple of other authors as well, all with the same name. So it's, there you go. Um, but. Yeah, so basically those two, as I, as I was saying earlier on, I've got an experimental Twitter um, account, but um, I'd rather, you know, it's got a picture of the cat up at present, and I'm just experimenting with it rather than actually um, doing anything serious. Um, Fantastic. Well, we'll uh, we'll keep following you and see what happens. Oh, don't worry, I feel you, Pam, when it comes to names. Joel Martin is probably one of the most generic names you can find out there um so i have troubles with that uh the, I've, I've been lucky in that not actually happening to me i don't think i've seen luke manly, luke manly anywhere else except there is a luke mabley who is a basketball player that's, i believe that's all right luke manly is like basically a pun in human form so it's fine you know <laughs> at least we know it's terrible like that luke where can people find you uh, you can word? still find me at the Soul Shard on Twitter or at www. Well, you don't need the www. So you just need the um, http thesoulshard.com. 
Fantastic. What have you got coming up? Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Second part of that story's not out. That's right. I'm, I'm still waiting for those tabs. clicks. I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting, <laughs> but there's no clicks. Those so. ad revenues. Yes. We'll give it to him. I don't get ad re- revenue. Can... I just go into the clicks. <laughs> and then he can have the impetus to put out a second part. That's we'll, right. We'll keep checking in with you. So we're meant to be talking about what we've just what we've got coming up or oh that's right oh, he's just got... been pushing me to finish yeah, this the, thing this so. one in particular <laughs> i've been pushing but if you've got any work that's coming up any launches or anything you'd like to talk about now's the time i've had a story come out in um called exceptional forces come out in asimov's magazine for this oh, yeah. uh, february issue mm-hmm. and um basically start off as a film script but um two people in a hotel room one of whom is pointing a iPhone that's been converted into a gun at somebody, um, and it basically involves an invasion from another galaxy mm. and how one would cope with it. I have got a story not yet come out, which will be coming out in Jack Dan's um, Dreaming in the Dark anthology called mm-hmm. The Luminarium Tower. It's a set in a fantasy world um, in probably what would be Persia in our world, Involving um, the construction of a 300-inch reflective telescope in order to kill a king. (laughs) High-powered laser. Hmm. Yes. And basically using medieval technology, they could have done it. Fantastic. And um, so that will hopefully be coming out fairly soon. (laughs) Um, They're the two main things. And otherwise, I'm working on novels. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure to check in with you in the near future. As for The Morning Bell, you can find it at themorningbell.net. Um, uh, sorry, my editor looked at me again. Uh, it is themorningbell.com.au, ladies and gentlemen. The Twitter, the Twitter link has also been changed, so it's uh, it, it's now reflective of that on the page. Um, as always, the Morning Bell is willing to look at your submissions in regards to short stories. We're very open to emerging writers, and they are looking to do some heavy editing on the stories to produce the best work that they can get out of you. So, please feel free to submit. As for myself, you can find me at thepenofjoel.com. I posted a um, blog post about positivity in a writer's life. And uh, it's, 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 I guess, uh, what, what is positivity in a writer's life and, you know, um, ways that we see that. But it's interesting and I hope you like it. Uh, as for the next guest, it is Andrew Nett. And he will be here in uh, two weeks. We'll see you then, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you for listening.